Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Joel Curtis, grew up and started skating in Sheffield, England. In the early 2000s, Joel turned pro for landscape skateboards and had the first part in their iconic full-length video portraits. In 2009, Joel moved to Bath in the southeast of England, was a young dad, had been struggling with injuries for a while, and therefore decided to retire from pro skateboarding. In the following years, he dedicated his time and energy to music projects for various brands and organizations in and out of the skateboarding industry. In 2021, Joel started the Skate Creative Podcast, in which he talks to creative people about how skateboarding has influenced their work creativity and life experience. He's recorded over 30 episodes so far with amazing guests from the UK skateboarding scene of the last 40 years. So here's my conversation with Joel. I hope you'll enjoy it. started the same way with every guest and you know talk about how he or she started skating and so I was wondering like I know that you lived in Sheffield for a long time yeah but now you've been living in Bath in the southwest of England for that's correct quite yeah. a long time as well but were you born in Sheffield born in Sheffield yeah so that's where I'm from and so that's where you started skating then That's why I started skating, yeah, definitely. And me and I've got an older brother, Seth. Yes. We both started skating at around the same time. How much older than you is he? He's only 18 months older than me. So, yeah, oh, okay. not, so not very much. Yeah. Yeah, 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 real close close together in age. And we used to, we started off riding kind of BMX bikes and stuff like that. And we had our house, we were really lucky, it backed onto a park, basically. So we used to do kind of like jumps on our bikes and things like that and, and stupid stuff. And then <laughs> I've got an older half brother as well, who's 10 years older than Seth. So, yeah. He's 55 now, I think. Yeah, something like that. But okay. But he gave us one old kind of 70s board, like uh, had black wheels and was real skinny. And we kind of messed around on that for a bit. And So how old were you when that happened? When you're like your very first uh, initiation to skating? Probably like seven, something okay. like that. Yeah, pretty early. Maybe Seth was a little bit older. but And that was something we just kind of, you know, butt boarded up. And there was like a, a path in the park up just above our house. And yeah, we'd just go down that hill and stuff and mess about. And So that's like mid 80s around there? Yeah, probably. I was born 78. So yeah, probably mid 80s, probably 84, 85, something like that. And then okay. obviously 85, well, actually 86 is kind of like the landmark year for a lot of people of my generation. Yeah, that's back, back to the future. Back to the future came out in 86. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we saw that, I think. And it, But it's weird. It's like, I can't even remember, like, it's so weird how culture worked back then because there was so much stuff, which was, we, you know, we went to the cinema sometimes, but it wasn't like every day or this or that. But, sure. and, and then you kind of, your memory gets mixed up did you wait till it came out on vhs which was probably like two years or but no i think we definitely went to see it once at the cinema and it was just like yeah the best thing ever mind-blowing it's funny when you look at it now because skateboarding is such a tiny part of that film it is yeah yeah but uh but i don't i don't know how come that has such a massive <laughs> impact on so many people but yeah yeah so yeah doing that and then kind of you know the standard going from that to like a a kind of supermarket board, you know, like plastic copers and all that kind of stuff. And I think I got my first proper board for, I think, my 10th birthday in 88, I think it was. Um... Do you remember what board it was or? Yeah, Santa Cruz Jeff Kendall with like the graffiti spray thing. Okay, nice. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, really good. Do you remember also like your first uh, video, like proper skate video and maybe the first magazine you saw? Do you remember those? 
Yeah, I think, well, Seth started getting, there was a, a magazine called BMX Action Bike, which was a, basically a, a BMX magazine, which ran for a long time, but that kind of morphed into what was RAD magazine, Rad magazine. Oh, uh, okay. So that in about, I think that was maybe 88, 89, that kind of turned into kind of like BMXing and skateboarding and a bit of like, there used to be these like um, kind of BMX scooters. Do you ever remember those? Not really. So, no. so if you like imagine like a big scooter with like mag wheels on it, basically. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. That was kind of like a thing for a minute in the late <laughs> okay. 80s. So they kind of covered up, but then it kind of went over to being rad, basically. Okay, okay, interesting. So that that was like the first the first magazine we saw were like those because like BMX action bike covered skateboarding a little bit, then it moved predominantly on skateboarding and became rad. Mm-hmm. But the first video, there was a guy who lived up the road from us who was like, I think he must have been six, seven years old than us, and I think his dad worked in America, so we'd see him all the time. He had like a kind of you know the Tony Hawk McSqueeb haircut and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like he had um, like vans and stuff like that his dad would buy him when he was in America and come back and he was like oh he was amazing that guy and like but he lent us i think it was future primitive i think the power oh, video and that yeah, was probably yeah. pretty old by then and i don't think we had my dad was an art lecturer at the college and we didn't even have like um, a vhs player so he had to buy he borrowed one like one of those big top loader ones he used to like rent it out from work and bring it home for a few days and we'd get that and we'd watch it yeah, amazing. <laughs> that was about it, yeah. And then I think, like, first proper, like, video I saw regular, I think it was Public Domain, which was maybe 88. We used to go down to the, the skate shop and watch that, but, yeah. I'm changing gears a little bit, but I was just interested in knowing, like, when your interest for music started. So you started skating around that time, like, mid-80s, around seven years yeah. old. I read in an interview you did that you started playing guitar and the piano a bit, like, around 10, 11 years old. Yeah. So I was wondering, like, how did that interest begin, aside from skating, and, like, how much time would you dedicate to kind of both things? They were both kind of just things that I kind of... my. Relevantly, my parents got divorced when I was about 10, but oh, okay. my mum remarried and my stepdad, Pete, had a guitar and, a, and a, like electric guitar and amp. And that's like, you know, when you're 10 years old, you're like, oh, wow, electric guitar. That's amazing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so it's kind of starting there, really. I mean, I think we had an acoustic guitar when I was a kid and I kind of played on that a little bit. But that was the first thing that I really got into. But I really got into Jimi Hendrix when oh, I was yeah. kind of about 11 and that was the stuff that I really, because it was kind of, um, that was the music I used to listen to all the time. And yeah, just started playing because of that, really. And that was, I was always just self-taught and stuff like that and mm-hmm. never really had any lessons or anything. It was all just noodling and things like that. And oh, So you never had like music lessons? No, I'm, I'm really dyslexic. So like any kind of like formal learning like that, I'm appalling at. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Left school with like, you know, one GCSE in art and that was it. I was really quite terrible. In that uh-huh. way, but, so I did like art courses and stuff like that. And okay. did that kind of stuff. But yeah, with music, I, I think I failed my music GCSE pretty badly. That's ironic. But there we yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so not formal learning in that, but yeah, just, just self-taught really. Yeah. Okay. So while you were like growing up and skating and playing music and everything, like uh, at what point did you kind of feel like you wanted to maybe turn pro one day or like explore skateboarding in a more professional way, if you can call it that? And did you kind of at the same time think uh, maybe I'll do something with music as well at some point or did that come later? Like how did it all uh, shape kind of? Kind of in a weird way, like I said, it, started, it was like skateboarding was something me and Seth just always did the whole time. And quite a lot of the time, Seth was way more into skateboarding than I was. I was kind of, I did it all the time and stuff like that. And I really kind of, I love doing it and stuff like that. But I never felt like I made any progress with it at all. Like, okay. I never felt like I was like, oh, you know. Confident. 
Well, confidence and kind of like I never fully make a, I made headway with it really until I was about 17, I think. I okay. kind of almost, when I was 16, I kind of, I almost quit. Well, not quit game, but I started skating a lot less and I started doing rock climbing quite a lot. Did oh, that quite a bit. Okay. Because there's a really big, in Sheffield, it's, it's close to a bit of uh, the UK called the Peak District, which is, it's like a national park basically. And okay. There's, there's loads of amazing like climbing routes and it's got a massive history of the last, you know, however many years of people rock climbing there and there's a really big scene in Sheffield. Okay. Okay. I got really into that and I kind of felt like like that was something that I really kind of enjoyed a lot made progress and like do I could see myself progressing out a bit and stuff and I used to climb with these guys a lot of whom I didn't really know but they were kind of like quite famous climbers actually and that was all cool and stuff but there was it was like that rock climbing scene was a bit weird and a bit kind of competitive and stuff like that and I was used to skating which was kind of very supportive Different in that vibe. way and yeah. yeah and it's kind of so I kind of stopped doing that then kind of came back to skating and this was around the time I think it was like 98 Seth moved out of Sheffield because he used to work in the our local skate shop Sumo right owned by Seb Palmer and uh, Martin Lau and Rona Lord, who they started that in 93, I think. Okay. So that was our local skate shop. and But then Seth kind of left Sheffield and I kind of feel like I kind of had my own time in skating then a bit more. It was weird because it was kind of like, it was really cool that we got to do it together, but it was always kind of more Seth's thing, I suppose, in a lot of ways. Okay. But then it was kind of, I just got to the point where I felt like I was doing it and I kind of improved a lot more. It's weird how things kind of happen in a yeah. weird way like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of tied in with, yeah, starting to get better and the scene changing in Sheffield a bit. Mark Baines moved over, things like that. And he lived like around the corner from me. And I used to go skate with him all the time and my friend Rob Ransford and a bunch of people. But it just felt like I kind of, I actually made some progress with it. And I'd been skating for like at least 10 years, maybe 11 years by that point. Wow, okay. So, but I kind of feel like that gave me a lot of like confidence on my board kind of thing. But in terms of like tricks and stuff like that, I felt like, you know, like I'd always prefer to do back side flips and things like that and other things that I like to do but I kind of felt like I had a few more of the building blocks there it's weird I, don't, I can't really explain it but yeah okay and then like that kind of came through with having a bit more having a bit of me and Seth had a brothers thing in Sidewalk Surfer magazine I think maybe 97 I think that was and then I just kind of just really started skating like every day by myself I was I went to college for a bit after school I did a couple of courses and then it was just like you know what I, I just quit them and I just wanted to skate really so I'd I literally just skate by myself a lot oh okay because everybody else was like either working or even people like Baines who was <laughs> Baines was quite funny he'd be quite specific about what he wanted to skate and, but that's you know that's that's always the way he's done it so mm. but I was just like I'd kind of get up in the morning and have some breakfast and just be like yeah, you know, I, I just want to go out so I just I'd literally just go out and skate by myself and try and just skate I'd skate around Sheffield loads and just try to find spots and trying to find things and I think that was the time when the first Zero video came out as well okay through it all yeah sorry to cut you off but I, I wanted to to ask you like when did sponsors start uh for you at that time well i think that was kind of i got on the like i said the shop was there and right. i got sponsored by the shop sumo that was yeah sumo that was probably 97 so that was my first sponsor really that okay. was the first thing that i had and then after that i got sponsored by panic that rings a bell yeah was that a uk brand or so basically, Panic was a precursor to Blueprint, basically. Oh, so, that's right, that's right. So there's a, a distributor that used to be in the UK called Phase 7, run by a guy called Joe Burlow. The first UK company there was Panic, which Paul Shire rode for, Matt Pritchard. Mm-hmm. I think Rob Selly and a bunch of other people, Dan McGee as well, wrote for that as well. And that was their first kind of attempt at a company. And that kind of went along for quite a while. And, you know, it was very varying different degrees of quality with the graphics and stuff like that. <laughs> 
Uh, then kind of Dan Dan McGee got more involved in doing more of the graphic stuff, more of the video stuff, and then they decided to start Blueprint as a kind of as, and then do the two companies together. And I got on Panic just at the end of that. Okay. When because Colin used to write for Panic as well, Colin Kennedy. Oh yeah. I think he was maybe one of the first pros for that, and John Rattray as well. Mm-hmm. So I got on Panic about the time when a lot of those guys were kind of migrating over to moving Blueprint, to Blueprint. Okay, yeah. I see. So that was maybe '98, I think. So when I was on Panic. Matt Pritchard was still pro on it and I'm not sure if anybody else was on it by then but that that kind of just dwindled and kind of they put all their efforts into Blueprint and Blueprint was kind of Dan McGee's kind of brainchild with that so yeah mm. so Panic kind of went by the wayside really so okay yeah. and then after that I got sponsored by Zero through Slam City Skates the distributor there so I wanted to ask you about that because I saw a video the other day you were skating I think with Mark Baines and uh, you're skating a gap and you do a backside flip I think and uh, you yes. were wearing like a Circa t-shirt yep yep and I don't know if it was in that specific footage but you were skating a Zero board and so I was wondering like oh he must have been sponsored by them uh, at that time maybe either brands or were you getting both kind of or i was getting both those but it was obviously this was kind of in the days when it'd be like a kind of more of a distribution sponsor rather than a direct sponsor so sure, sure. it was slam city skates who had a shop in the well still do have a shop even though it's changed hands a couple of times since then but mm-hmm. they had a distributor as well they used to distribute circa they used to distribute toy machine zero all the tomato brands zoo york and a bunch of other different things back then and yeah so i was on circa through them mm-hmm. and zero as well so yeah that was really good because there were brands that i really liked i really loved jamie thomas and those videos yeah you were about to tell me about that Zero video that you watched. Which one was it? That Was it the first one, the Misled Youth? Thrill or? of It All. Thrill of It All is the first one. That was like 97 that came out. So. Oh, Misled Youth was afterwards? I don't remember. Misled Youth 99. Yeah, that's the oh, bit okay. later. Okay. Yeah, so that was the first one. It's a really kind of short video and they're kind of, they kind of don't have much footage in it and stuff like that. Everyone's part's pretty short, but yeah. I really love that video because it was, it was a lot of quite kind of basic skateboarding really and a kind of lot of stuff that I was really into and like the whole kind of girl chocolate thing which was really popular at the time like real style you know like baggy trousers that kind of stuff yeah, and, yeah. which is amazing and stuff like that but I, was, I just I didn't really I couldn't do you that you didn't stuff, relate really, so uh, as, as much didn't relate yeah. so I was kind of a bit, a bit more heavy metal and black clothes and you know trying to do some kind of you know some, some more basic stuff but, but maybe a bit yeah. a bit faster or a bit higher maybe I don't know but, <laughs> so that that video was really good and I, and I kind of yeah tried to skate a lot of spots to try and emulate those things I suppose and I've I kind of used to go and do like a lot of kind of drop-ins on stuff and things like that yeah yeah and like like gnarly skating kind of like rails yeah, kind gaps. Of, but I used to, I kind of I used to go and do that by myself quite a lot as well, just like with no filmers and no no, for, which is kind of weird. I was kind of thinking about this the other day, and I was just thinking, shit, it's actually quite dangerous. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> there was one thing that ended up being a like a poster in uh, in sidewalk actually, which was I was really stoked to have, but it was. Um, like a, a kind of like I think this thing was like 12 foot high there was like a, a big kind of like a thing that a buttress which is supports buildings basically okay so there's like a, a kind of an angled like bank thing but it was only kind of like a foot and a half wide maybe something like that and then went down to six foot then there was just like a drop so you just kind of drop in down the thing then do the six foot drop I don't know if I can find it on my phone but yeah but I went and did that like by myself wow like I went and found it on my own then I went back with horsey and I was just thinking shit that was actually quite dangerous at the yeah, time yeah, but, yeah yeah for sure to do it I, I just yeah, just, yeah. just wanted to go skate and do those things and I kind of really wanted to you know try and push myself a lot and, I, yeah. and kind of no one else is around in the daytime so I just kind of went and did it by myself but there we go 
So you were getting zero boards and everything. And so at what point did um, Landscape start and when did you get on? Did you get on at the very beginning of the brand or? Well, kind of before that, yes, because basically what happened was Zero switched distributors to another distributor called New Deal, and I wrote for them for a little bit. Around this time as well, Dan McGee started another little offshoot kind of side project called Octagon Wheels, mm-hmm. which was, there's like an Octagon section in the fir- in Waiting for the World, the first proper blueprint video. Okay. There's like a section, there were all the people who were kind of, Dan used to either put on flow for stuff, or we just used to get wheels and stuff like that, and I was part of that, and I had a little bit of footage in that, which was really cool to be in that video. That's amazing. But um, that kind of crossed over into... Yeah, I was running for Zero through New Deal by then. But then Foz started working at Slam City Skates, who I used to ride for the previous, who used to previously distribute Zero. Uh And I think I was still riding for Circa then, I think, maybe. So I got to know him pretty well. And obviously Foz was was doing heroin skateboards at that point. That was in the really early days of that. That just started. That was kind of like, you know, he was spray painting boards in his house and kind of things. Yeah, sure. Just just making little little bits and stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And they came around to that they wanted to start a company, like a an in-house company with Slam, basically. So that was Organic Skateboards, which oh. was me, Ollie Todd, Toby Shaw, and Snowy, who Snowy had started running for heroin before that, and then he switched Moved over to Moved over organic. to, okay. Yeah, so Organic came out, and that we kind of started to film stuff for that, and we had a little section in Dan McGee's video first broadcast. Mm-hmm. There's a, an organic section in that, which is we all had footage in that. And then basically... What year was that? Do you remember that video? So that's probably... Uh, well, first broadcast, I think, is 2002, maybe, or 2001, maybe. Okay. Yeah, something like that, because it was Dan's kind of idea to do a video with, I think, a bit more kind of like a Transworld video where he could not just do a video with everybody else on Blueprint. Obviously, there's a lot of Blueprint riders on that, but he did things with Frank Stevens and a bunch of other different people from different companies to try and showcase all these different things and right right yeah everybody on organic had a had a section in that so okay so that started we kind of that went on for about a year year and a half something like that and that was all good and it kind of came down to some kind of decisions of where it was going to kind of continue and foz was like the warehouse manager for slam okay and we had meetings about what where the company was going to go and all this kind of stuff and and basically there was a kind of not disagreement but I think a kind of thing about Fosfelli put a lot of time into this company and then the people at Slam did they didn't come back with him with like a, a good deal a percentage or whatever a kind of like an ownership deal of it okay. they kind of saw it as as more their kind of thing and it kind of collated with Foz leaving Slam and he said well I want to start a company and just have you guys on it and we kind of thought well you know we, we'll go with Foz basically so that's yeah. kind of what happened really in the end okay. And that ended up being landscape, and that's when that started. So that must have started maybe 2002, something like that. And then then we kind of started filming for the video. So straight after the brand started, you started working on uh, on a full length. That was the plan. I think pretty much, yeah. I mean, it was kind of, but it's talking to you know people about it really it's like it kind of just came together weirdly it wasn't like it's like the guy who made portraits is a guy called chris massey yep who is gone right he's uh yeah he passed away unfortunately a few years ago but um he was a friend of dan mcgee's used to live with dan okay and he started filming a little bit around london and in a weird way he kind of came around to do this this video for foz and for landscape okay 
but yeah, that was a really uh, quite of a, a weird process of that kind of stuff. Of because I suppose I'd had video parts. I had a part for the like the sumo video, which was '98, I think, and then the part you're talking about with Mark Baines that was in Steady, which is a guy called Neil Chester who made that one. And then Mark made a video I had part in as well called Driving South, which is still somewhere, I think. But but yeah, this was the kind of first video part of like a company that I rode for. And, you know, there's a project that I kind of really, really wanted to get my teeth into. But it's it's such a weird process. Anybody that's filmed a video part, I'm sure they'll tell you. It's like it never feels like you're making progress with it. And it's especially back then as well. I think maybe these days it might be a little bit easier when you could probably like share footage a bit easier. But if yeah. you want to see all the footage you had, you had to physically go to the place. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Sit down with someone at a computer and, and look at it. Look at it like uh, clip by clip, and yeah, exactly. And I, could, I didn't do that till it was edited, you know, till it was oh, finished. Okay. So it was just a question of just like film as much as possible. And we went on a couple of trips and things like that. And I went on trips. I used to go on trips quite regularly with with Dan and everybody from Blueprint. We used to go to Mallorca and Barcelona and stuff like that. And there was one trip I did with there was uh, Ollie Oliver Barton who now works for Primitive. Right. Used to work work for Skateboarder, and he did like a they had an article in Skateboarder which was like one photographer and one skate for a week kind of thing oh okay so he wanted to do that with mark baines and uh we basically ollie drove us from sheffield to barcelona and back in a week wow. so we went to paris <laughs> leon some bits in the south france some provence loads of places for like a week of like solid we stayed with al boglio and the guys at cliche for a, a couple of nights and amazing that must have been fun it was really good yeah it was an intense week oh i'm sure yeah I filmed loads, quite a bit of my part, actually, with Dan McGee for that. Oh, okay, okay. Which, I, yeah, always grateful for that. But yeah, that was that was a key trip for me, for the, especially for that part, definitely. I wanted to ask you also, just changing gears a little bit, but while we're still talking about sponsors, I know that you skated for like the Nike SB UK team for yes. a while. And I was wondering, like, when did you get on? Because like, uh, I remember I started skating in 2000 and I think Nike started a few years later, maybe in 2003, four, I'm not too sure. They had yes. been trying for years to get into the skateboarding industry. It didn't really, never really worked for them because people were kind of rejecting Nike for a long time. They didn't want to like do the whole corporate brand thing. And But it, eventually it worked like uh, once they like started this new program with all these like iconic pros and after a while they got like Paul Rodriguez and other people on and everything. Uh, I was wondering yeah. like at what point did you get on and if it was in the very early years of Nike, like how did your friends in the skate industry or community in Sheffield or wherever you were at that time, how did they react to you getting Nike shoes at that time? Well, it was all quite, kind of happened quite naturally because the guy who was started the skate shop, Seb Palmer, was actually the rep for Nike. So he changed into that basically. And I was riding for, I rode for Circa for a little while. Before that, I think Globe for a little bit as well. And okay. After that, I rode for Savia. Do you remember Savia? Yeah, shoes? yeah. That was yeah. Uh, also a Nike brand, right? Well, I don't think that's ever really been denied or confirmed. I don't know. Okay. That, that was the possibility. I don't I don't know the ins and outs of that. And that was, again, for me, was like a distributed deal. So it was kind of just... There's a guy, a really good guy called Cubic who used to be the kind of rep and the kind of TM for that. He's a great guy. But yeah, he hooked me up with that. And then basically Savia folded and... Xavier had uh, Stefan Janowski and like Brian Anderson and people like that. Brian Anderson, Colin Kennedy, John Rattray had a pro shoe on them. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. 
which was a, a really good shoe, that one. It was amazing. But yeah, then basically that kind of folded and Seb was just like, oh, if you want to get on Nike, I can get you on that. I was like, yeah, definitely. Yeah, amazing. And they'd, they'd already built up quite a big team. Colin was already on and a bunch of different people. So yeah, that was probably 2004, maybe, I think, something like that. So quite early days of that first iteration of they just kind of moved over because when they started, I think maybe 2002, something like that, they had kind of the, I think all of Nike's things is they always kind of try and be very progressive with the materials and their kind of what they use to kind of make something technically proficient, basically. Mm-hmm. Which is like a lot and a lot of the shoes they had were kind of quite not weird designs, but kind of like quite specifically engineered for skateboarding and kind of a bit more kind of reinventing a kind of skate shoe, really. And it's like okay. I think that got rejected not only because of maybe people's opinion about Nike or whatever, but also these people were used to Vans, they were used to Etnies, these very kind of quite simple shoes, basically. Right, right, yeah. And it was just when kind of Nike had kind of realized that they had to kind of go back to kind of like the dunks and stuff like that, which people skated in. A more traditional kind of route. More traditional yeah. kind of shoes and stuff like that, I think. And that's when the kind of like the Gino ones came out and all that kind of stuff. And okay, okay. So, but that was really good to ride for them at that point. I mean, you know, it's it, it's tough with that kind of corporate involvement with, with something like skateboarding in a lot of ways. But at the same time, you know, Vans is a massive corporation. His own For ride. sure, yeah. And that's not criticism of them or whatever, that's, but that's just the way these things are. It's like I always felt like it was better to kind of be with because the it's not like it was just some faceless guy on the phone who I was dealing with. It was like my friend who who worked for the company. So right. it's kind of like, and I think that is the thing. It's like if there is going to be this corporation involvement in skateboarding, which there inevitably is, it's about the people who are involved in the kind of managing that and doing that. So sure, you could have some corporation which has just got some guy who just goes and hires a bunch of people and has, has got no involvement in skateboarding and stuff like that, and that's never good. But and three Seb I got to meet people like Hunter, who's uh, one of the guys at Nike SB mm-hmm. in America, and he's an amazing guy and always really nice, always really supportive. And you know, they had a budget to send me places. I got to go to Australia, I got to go to oh, nice. Europe a bunch of times with like do demos and stuff like that. And and those things are, are so hard for you know independent companies, and especially British companies or European companies, to kind of fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, there wasn't that much money in skating and. Well, Landscape, you know, is was a great company to ride for, but we had, had no money at all. You yeah, know? Like, it was a small brand, you know, yeah really small and it's like everyone was just you know hand to mouth with that stuff and that's and that's not not complaining about that and it's not like no you know, no of course but, but it's uh, just yeah. just the way those things are so, so to have a bit of that kind of like you know as many shoes as i could eat and you know yeah. all that kind of stuff it was great yeah, yeah so yeah. so i always look back on that and really as a really good thing and it's like getting to go away with colin and, and a lot of those guys was amazing as well. colin was a really old friend of mine colin kennedy so right yeah it was yeah. great to have him on the team then a bunch of different people like Karan in bristol oh yeah uh, well from from bristol was uh, an early guy on the team and stuff and Chewy used to ride for them and, and loads of oh, my friends really? so it was, before because it was he, really good. yeah he's been on Adidas for he's been a on Adidas time. for a yeah. long time yeah yeah but he he was on Nike before that okay he was on Nike Snowy was on as well so yeah, yeah. like you know just go and get to do trips like to Australia and stuff like that with my friends which nice. was amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah really good so you didn't have people like around you giving you shit about getting on Nike basically they weren't like telling you like he's evil or something or well I think anything like that they'd always kind of remove the personal from it they'd always be like oh Nike's a load of shit but they I don't think people never had personally had a go at me about it and like okay. and maybe they did and I didn't <laughs> I didn't hear it but at <laughs> yeah. the same time I think it would always be well if someone's going to take the money and get paid that's kind of their choice and that's sure. the way I I always look at that as well I, I would never blame anybody for taking money for skateboarders sure you know no I mean? of course yeah. and wherever it's coming from because if you know if you're going to get paid to do something that you love to do like that I think that is obviously there might be some companies or certain things that you might 
that everyone's got their line of what they you know obviously like some of the things like olympics and things like that's a whole different ball game or you know sure. with those being in the countries they've just been in and stuff like that 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 would be if i was in that situation i'd, I'd question that quite a lot I think. yeah 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 but i don't know i mean that's maybe maybe paradoxical but you know mm. but you, you weren't like too hesitant like you you had your friend working there and you, you had all these things that yeah completely kind of so felt it's... like it was a good uh, a good move and a good uh, well exactly I mean, like my my involvement with the corporation was nil basically right right yeah it was just like writing for anybody else really so okay it wasn't like they were kind of phoning me up and telling me what to do or how i should behave or anything like that so, <laughs> thank god yeah <laughs> yeah yeah totally And so to come back to portraits, I wanted to ask you, like, um, I don't remember when I saw that video for the first time, but I, I have a strong memory of it, especially your part. First, because it's the first one. Also, because like at that time, I think I was super into like tech skating. And like, obviously, you're not a super tech skater. Like you're, yeah, you're yeah. a bit more of a more basic, but really well executed tricks and stuff. Nice selection of spots and everything more curated kind of than going towards a very technical side of skating. Yeah. But like, I really liked your part. And especially I didn't know the song at first when I heard it. I didn't know it was The Cure. I didn't really oh, know okay, yeah. The Cure that well at that point when I was a teenager. And so I just felt like, wow, this song and this type of skating and like a lot of footage at night and everything. Like it, it just, yeah. it gave a very strong like uh, feeling. And I felt that with a few other parts, you know, throughout my life, like, for example, I don't know, um, totally different, of course. But like, I remember seeing like the DC video and watching Kalis uh, skate to, uh, I think, Gangstar. Yeah. Or like Jake Johnson in Minefield skating to Animal Collective. Yeah. Like there's a few skaters slash uh, song or band that really match together so well. And I put your part definitely up there in that list of like iconic parts for me. Oh, thanks a lot. That's amazing. No, of course. And, and I was wondering, like, do you have like one part that comes to mind in that regard? Like of a, a part of a skater that you really like and that the music fitted his skating really well? Do you have something that comes to mind? Yeah, a bunch, yeah. But I, I suppose my t if I had to pick a couple of video parts, I think there are parts, it's like the skateboarders that I really like mm -hmm. and like I love, and I love their, their sections and stuff like that. But I think it, it's, a, I know what you're talking about, it's kind of a coming together of the parts come together to make something a bit more than just the skating or just the music or just exactly. the section. And the two that I'd pick is probably Jamie Thomas and Misled Youth. What song was he skating to? So a couple, but Barbara Riley by The Who is the main one, which is kind of like, it's so funny because it's one of those songs now that kind of like has been on so many things and is like, and you're kind of real in the public consciousness quite a lot and things like that. But right, yeah. I obviously heard of The Who because I was a big music fan, but that's one song that I'd not really heard. So it kind of like the first time I saw it was that. And the first time I heard that music was was on that section. Okay. And I was like a massive Jamie Thomas fan. Yeah. So I think, and then I think he's got a Doors track at the end as well. The end. Oh yeah. And that's you know like he's one of those guys that I always really loved his output because he really did think about the whole structure of the video yeah. and kind of how it was edited and was I think one of the key people historically in skateboard videos actually I think mm. just because of how much he kind of boiled down a lot of those kind of tropes in skate videos and I mean it's a it's a particular type of skate video. And Yeah, and that kind of stuff. But he had a vision, a clear vision of what he wanted to achieve, and yeah, for sure, definitely, yeah. And I think that's kind of something which is, yeah, was not happening. So, like I say, happening in different ways for other things. But I think he was, he really made made something quite, yeah, very simple, unique, but very, very impactful. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other one for me would probably be Jason Dylan photosynthesis. I think. Oh, a Radiohead song, or it's a Radiohead song. 
and I, right. I've, I was not a big Radiohead fan for a long time, but but that really that's an iconic one as well, yeah. For that's sure. an iconic one of that, and that really changed my opinion about a lot of stuff in skateboarding as well. It actually, changed my skateboarding quite a lot as well because I was kind of coming out of that kind of zero Jamie Thomas phase, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of I saw that video part, and I just thought, yeah, well, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, a lot of the like stuff in that big, video is uh, big rails, exactly, big yeah. gaps, and yeah, exactly. And I kind of, th- you know, that that was really inspirational in a way of like, oh, he's kind of, you know, he's tech, but it's kind of more to do with the style rather yeah. than kind of like being dope, <laughs> commas kind of <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But he was kind of, he kind of like had a twist on, you know, not only his clothes and the way the way he dressed and things like that, but but the way he skated as well was just like. Mm. And I think that part really is, if you look back now, it's like how much of an influence that had on skating today and how much Huge. that kind of yeah. stuff, you know, obviously there's a bunch of people who have massive influence today, but I think that's a, that's a real key one, actually. Yeah. I mean, especially that, that whole video is pretty, pretty seminal, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Did photosynthesis come out before? Yeah, it came out a few years before uh, portraits, right? Like early two thousands, maybe. So I suppose two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah, so it was a couple of years before that. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. So yeah, I think that was probably the stuff in portraits that I had was kind of probably inspired a lot by the Jason Dill part, and and maybe maybe trying to move over to a bit less bit less handrails and stuff like that, and because mm. I felt like you know like handrail skating is something I did a bit, but mm-hmm. I kind of. I never really got very tech with it because it kind of moved on a lot. And it's like, you know, like simple, like 50-50s and lip slides and board slides are fair enough. But, yeah. you know, you can, you can only have so many of those in a section or whatever. And you can only yeah. have, at that point, I felt like it had to be more unique to have it in there. And, you know, there's a, there's a, some bits in that in portraits. but Yeah, there's it's a good mix, I think, the portraits part because it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Th- there's some big skating, if you can call it that, and some uh, more like elegant kind of tech, like uh, there's this spot in London where you do a manual, revert to fakey manual. Oh, yeah, thing. yeah. That looks simple when you watch it, but like uh, anybody who tries it, it's actually very hard. Like, and uh, and it, you just did it really well. And especially like in the middle of the part, it was like a nice little twist or something. Like um, Yeah, well, that is actually a direct reference to that Jason Dill part because he does one on Pier 7 on the, he does exactly the same oh. trick on okay. Pier 7. So I kind of justified it by saying, well, this one's quite a lot higher. So <laughs> like it wasn't too much of a bite. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, now that was an inspiration from that, really. So, okay, yeah. okay, interesting. So that, that is a direct homage to that, I suppose, yeah. So to continue on portraits, tell me how you worked with uh, Chris, right? Chris, Chris Ma- Massey, Massey, yes. Yeah, who, who directed the video. Yeah. How did you work with him on like putting together that part? Did he kind of do it all by himself, so to speak, and have you come in at the end and showed it to you and asked Pretty you to... much, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that was kind because of, I was living in Sheffield still and he was in London. And he was in London and obviously... Toby Shaw, Ollie Todd, and Snowy were all in London as well. So he you was were the only one outside of it. Yeah, I was the only one outside of it. So I kind of I filmed a bit with different people and some people in Sheffield. I think I've probably filmed with Baines a little bit, Mark Baines. Mm-hmm. But I used to go to London pretty regularly, really, because my brother lived there and he was, you know, he met his wife by then and they had a house. So I used to go and just crash on their sofa for weeks on the end. But so I never really lived in London, but I kind of I felt a real massive connection to that scene, really, and. While I was still kind of, you know, Sheffield was where I lived and where I was part, you know, that was my main scene really. But I always felt mm. London was kind of like a, a second scene that I was, you know, knew loads of people at and stuff, and which was always amazing. And that they were always really, really cool for that. And, yeah. But yeah, Chris was working away really. And I was kind of, you know, sending him footage and occasionally coming down. I filmed a little bit with him when we went on a couple of trips to Paris and things like that. And Oh, yeah. I want to ask you about, uh, uh, and I think we talked about this over Instagram once, like uh, you do this back three on the 
Ivry Blue Wave thing, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's in Ivry. It's right in the south of Paris. Yes. And uh, you do like first you do a back 5-0 on the whole thing. And then yeah. you, you do a back three. And I think like that back three at that time just blew my mind the way you oh, did wow, it. Okay. I was wondering like how much of a battle, so to speak, was it? Or did it come very easily for you to do that trick? Or did it take you a few, like a long time to get it done? Or It didn't actually. And I think that's kind of, I started doing that trick a little bit more around that time. And I think that was actually one of the first ones that I kind of did, I think. Okay. Wow. Quite early on, I didn't really do many towards that point because it was, I'd maybe done a couple, like, you know, it, like maybe a couple of things, I think. I'm trying to think. It's hard to remember. But but that was just one day we went to that spot and it's, and Soy, Soy kind of knows really that, that day, I yeah, think, yeah. as well. And I was just kind of skating it with him and I started trying the back five oh mm -hmm. and that spot is one of my favorite spots in the world it's so good it's just so it smooth is, yeah. and really good but that those ledges are quite kind of rounded and so yeah. from what i remember so it was kind of like when you got it i got into that five oh and it's kind of it would always kind of slip out to the side or go off a little bit and so that took a little while and i think i started trying the 360 after that okay and yeah I, i don't remember it being a long time but like i say it was kind of like in i was still trying to figure that trick out a bit then so i think i just probably got lucky <laughs> So yeah, well, just, I mean, just hit it right. But yeah, as the saying goes, some days you eat the bar, some days the bar eats you. And that was a day I was all right. But yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. I found out, I found out like a bit later on that, that JJ Russo had done the 5 0 like I think the week before. Yeah, that one was in uh, Bon Appetit I think it was or something. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably. I think it came out that same year, more or less. Yeah. Yeah, I think that same day I tried to nose grind it as well. Oh. Like the whole, but I did like. There was no fucking way. That's hard. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Somebody must have done it at this point, but like, yeah. Maybe. And I think it would probably, it would probably be cool to do like a nose grind, kind of like pop out the top of the second wave bit. That would be cool. But sure. if I was going to do it, I was going to do the whole lot and it was just, it was too steep. Yeah. Another one that got away was the, um, there's another spot in Paris, which is like a bank. People do tricks into the bank. Then there's a drop at the bottom. It's like into a road. I don't know where that is. Yeah, I think I see what you mean. But I don't think that that spot is there anymore. Right, okay, yeah. But that one I tried to nose, I tried to ollie into nose really down the bank. Oh, damn. And I got, I got off it a couple of times, but I couldn't put it down. Couldn't so stick it? Yeah. I'd nose really the whole thing, but then couldn't get off the end. But yeah, that, was that must like be scary to ollie and no, like, oh yeah, that, that yeah. makes me anxious just thinking about <laughs> it. <laughs> it was sketchy, but yeah, I, I fucking was, I was really wanting to go back and do that, but then you were just didn't get Oh yeah, but too then, bad. Yeah. I think that was a trip with Foz and Seth. I went to Paris once for that. But that was another one that got away, but yeah. So we talked about working on the part with Chris, but uh, yeah. like, were you very picky on like the way you executed a certain trick? Like, would you ask to see the footage right after you... Like, for example, let's talk about the back three. Like, once you did sure. that one, did you ask to see it in order to, you know... It's like it's good enough, or, or were you kind of like, well, whatever, like I did it. I don't care what it looks like or something. Like, how did you approach kind of that? It would usually be either you'd watch it at the time once and that would be kind of it. And to do with filming stuff like that, I totally trusted Chris and he was a really good filmer. Mm -hmm. And everybody else I filmed with, I was never, I was never kind of like, oh, I don't know, you know, about this. Or I was never, I was never, I'd always come at it from my point of view. If there was something I didn't like about how I landed it, I'd want to do it again. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't let those things go until I was happy with it. But mm -hmm. in terms of the filming and stuff like that, it's like back then you'd probably watch it once when you made it. Because obviously with, with DV tape like that, the more you rewind and watch it, the more it's the possibility of it degrading and stuff like right, that. Right, right, yeah. Possibly glitching and stuff like that. Yeah. But then we, you know, once it got put down onto 
a lot of those trips, you kind of go home at the end of the day, then it'll get dumped on a computer and sometimes you'd watch it back then and stuff like that. But but I was thinking about I was always thinking about my my part of the deal really rather than anybody else's. And I totally had total total faith in Chris to either film it or mm. even in the edit put it together. And like I said, I didn't really see that part until it was done. Okay. I remember going to going to London and kind of going to specifically to go and watch it. And I just went around his house. It was in Boston Manor. And the, another funny thing was like I'd picked that song. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah, but I'd kind of it was in my parents' record collection actually, and they had a Cure album. And I was kind of listening to that, and it was but it was a remix like album that they did in I think nineteen ninety. Okay. So there's one like a remixed version. A lot of kind of like there's a lot of samples on it, and a bit more kind of drum machines and stuff like that. Because that one is quite drum machiney anyway. Yeah. It sounds quite different to a lot of the Cure stuff back then, and but this this version that I that I heard, I was like, oh yeah, I really want this song. And I told Chris, it's got oh, it's called uh, A Forest by the Cure, and he's like, oh okay, and he heard one and he was like and i think he heard that one he was like i don't know if it sounds a bit dancey and stuff like that but then somehow he found the original version of it mm-hmm. which i hadn't heard and then i came down to watch my part and i was like oh this isn't the song that i picked yeah but then oh, i was like okay. oh this is a different version and i was like oh it is the song and it's like we had the same song but two different versions of it in our minds basically but then i went around to see it and i was just like oh yeah that's that's really good oh so so the one he he ended up using is not the one you had initially okay initially initially my that i knew was in my mind yeah oh, so it was this okay. remixed version of it which was um i'll send you the link to it yeah but, uh, i'd love to listen to uh like the one you you had uh discovered yeah i'd be yeah. curious to see uh the differences yeah but um yeah like i say it's probably ironically even though the uh the original version is older i think the the remix version is probably dated a bit more because okay. it sounds it's got like a lot of kind of beaty things which are kind of quite 90s in there but yeah okay okay yeah well regardless it worked so well on, on your skating and it, it turned out oh, really nice. really great yeah the whole video is yeah, amazing I was happy with it yeah I think that's the thing that I kind of come away with that is it's kind of weird in a way to kind of talk about a video that I was in that I kind of like, oh yeah, it was really good or whatever. And it's not like <laughs> I want to do that. But, but that, I think there's a lot of videos, there's so many skate videos that came out there and stuff like that, which people have just forgotten about. And I think- Well, yeah, for sure. That one has a real, has a through line and has a kind of, something which a lot of other videos don't have i think yeah it has a very strong identity and like definitely, it gives yeah. you a strong feeling yeah for sure it definitely um how do you say stands the test of time or it's definitely an iconic video for me yeah it's a really good one yeah because i think that's just like you say about that thing about it being the combination of the music the skating, yeah and the, the spots the, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the variety of skating between all four of you yeah just uh, also it's just four skaters it's not well i mean there must be some other people there's, like a, there's other, a few a few friends in there yeah just dropped into but they're they're in the parts yeah like my right. brother's got a trick and i think soy's got a trick in my section as well but yeah oh does he okay yeah just one i think yeah so uh, I'm kind of moving a bit further in, in time, but um, I wanted to ask you about like, uh, so I think you said on, on your website, that I think that's where I saw it. You said that you retired from pro skating in 2009. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about like kind of uh, how did the few years between portraits and you deciding to quit skating, not quit skating, but quit pro skating uh, yeah. in 2009. And also like what kind of made you decide to retire? Was there like a gnarly injury of some sort that kind of pushed you with the, this decision or how, how did the following years uh, happen for you? Well, it's kind of kind of weird because kind of portraits came out and that was, we kind of kept that going, the momentum of that going for a little bit. And Chris did another little promo for us when Soy got on. Yeah, yeah. And I was really happy with all the footage. Like I filmed with him quite a lot for that. And I was really stoked on that stuff. And then it was kind of a, that kind of was kind of the culminating time of a lot of stuff changing in my life. Really, I moved from, from Sheffield. I, I met my wife, basically. Right. We kind of, we moved to Bath. 
What made you decide to move down there? Did she have family out there? Or? No, no, she, she, she got a job here, basically. She was living in London. She worked in the fashion industry before that. Okay. And she used to live in Italy and uh, oh, Paris nice. and Milan, a bunch of stuff. And she was she just taking a job at the university here, teaching fashion. Okay. How did you feel at the time? Uh, were you, like, down for it? Or were you kind of like, well, I was oh, kind of going to move to... I was there and stuff, but it was, I was kind of like, I have to leave because I'd been there my whole life, basically. I was just like, I want to go somewhere else. I was going to move to London. Oh, okay. And then, obviously, um, I met Kerry, and she was she was living in London at the time, so we kind of were there for a little bit, but then she was like, oh, I'm going to move to, to Bath because of this job. And I was like, well, you know, if, if I'm going to move to London, there's no point in me moving there, and then you're going to be somewhere else. I might as well just... We, yeah. We, kind of figured out we wanted to live together and stuff so mm-hmm. it was, we just moved here really and it was kind of on a on a whim it was kind of one of those things where you don't not don't think about it but it's just like oh yeah we're just going to do that and it's just just what happened really and it was it was fine and it's kind of it, a few things kind of happened after that like the i think about two months after i left i think the sumo shut down oh yeah so that shop had been there for a long time you know since 93 to yeah nearly well yeah over 20 years i think mm-hmm and then that shop, which was kind of like an veneer in, in the Sheffield scene, definitely. And uh, quite a lot of people kind of migrated. And obviously, you know, these things happen in scenes and skate scenes and cities all the time of sure. people coming in and out. And so that was a kind of weird one. And I kind of moved down here and I started to go to Bristol quite a lot. I started working in 5050, which is a uh, shop owned by Justin Sydenham and Danny Wainwright. So Bristol is close to Bath, right? Bristol's like 12 miles away, yes. Okay, so it's pretty okay. Close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My geography of uh, the UK is not that good. <laughs> it's totally fine, yeah. My French geography is probably terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was that was a really interesting thing to do. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was good to be part of that scene in Bristol. And, and I worked at a skate shop here in Bath for a little bit as well, which was good. Were you still skating professionally when you moved to Bath? or? Yeah, so I was still pro and still doing that. And I was still, when I was working at 5050, I'd still go on trips every now and again and still okay. do all that stuff. But the main reason for kind of quitting was we had our first child, which was in 2006, oh, yeah. my, my son Logan. 2006? Okay, so he's like 17? He's coming up for 17 in July, yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, got a jo- he's got a job and a pub and everything. Yeah, it's quite crazy. Amazing. So that was the kind of thing of it was getting to the point where you know when you when you have kids in a family situation if if you want to be part of it you have to contribute basically so you either yeah. have to contribute well <laughs> to put it bluntly you have to contribute time or money basically yeah. And yeah so it's like and obviously me and my wife are still very much together and it's it, as we still are today but it's one of those things you just have to do and it was kind of like well if I like my wife had a, a good job and she was working hard and it's like well you know I'm going to work in a skate shop the whole time to pay for childcare it's like it seems stupid really yeah yeah I see. and then it was kind of you get to the point where she'd have to take time off work for me to go on skate trips basically so it just got to a point where it was unmanageable and it's like and the thing was as well i mean i wasn't making any much or little money to be a professional skateboarder at that point it was yeah. just you know i was getting board royalties i had a small retainer from nike and stuff like that but we're talking it wasn't even covering costs of what i was doing so yeah, yeah. and i kind of i had the point where i was just like you know so i was doing child it got to the point where i was doing childcare the whole week and then i try and go and film at the weekend and i'd be pretty knackered and i was having back problems as well just because you know when you kind of are carrying kids around the whole day that's oh yeah, yeah hard yeah. on you physically and i'd had sure. back injuries already so that was the kind of thing where it was just like i was trying to skate the weekend and feeling out of shape and feeling like i'm not you know because every time i'd go out i'd be like oh, i want to film because i want to get some stuff done I want yeah to some photos, i want to be productive these things. exactly yeah yeah and that kind of put a lot of pressure i'm up like pressure on myself to do it and i think it, it just got to the point where i was just like i'm just not enjoying it anymore yeah 
it got to that point where I, I remember the day I think when I was in London. I went to London with Alan Glass, who's started filming oh, yeah. the landscape stuff, and yeah, who's been on your podcast a bunch of times. Yeah, he has. Yeah, he's a good good friend of mine. He works at Shiner Distribution now. Right. And I went to, went to London with him one day, and I was like, we were out filming somewhere, and I just I tried to do something, and I just got hurt, and I was just like, you know what? I'm just I'm fucking done with this. I can't. Mm. I didn't think that I was earning the right to be pro. Basically, I didn't feel happy with it. I didn't feel like I'd done anything really since that promo that came out with Soy that time that I'd been really happy with or proud of. I had one interview in Sidewalk, okay. which I was kind of stoked on, but I think that was maybe 2005. That was kind of the last thing that I was kind of like, oh, I'm really happy with this. And after that, I was just kind of like, well, you know, I'd rather just concentrate on doing, being with my son and bringing him up and doing that and have, you know, just, just commit to that really, I suppose. And yeah. Um, in a I kind understand. of, you know, not not to be kind of like pulled away from it. And, and I still wanted to skate and I still did did skate loads for a, a long, long time after that. And, you know, little bits now and again. But that was the point where I was just kind of like, well, it's such a different zone to be like a parent in that situation. It's like, I suppose I was 20, 28 when he was born. Okay. So I still kind of young in that way, but it's a lot of work and it's very physically tiring having a baby and all that stuff, as anybody knows who's done it. But mm. to, to marry those two things together was really tough. And I just, I just thought, well, I'd rather actually just call it now rather than trying to eke it out and feel like I wasn't doing it properly or you know mm. my nightmare thing would be say someone you know oh that's there's someone say that guy doesn't deserve to be pro anymore kind of thing I just yeah I see yeah. I don't want that at all do you know what I mean so I'd rather just call it quits and... Off and yeah and just just skate for fun basically which I started doing from then really but, okay. but yeah I had a little part in the Horizons video and I think that was 2008 but there was not very much footage and the footage I had I was kind of happy with okay in that but it just there just was nowhere near enough really I just didn't have the time to do it okay and it was just that point of just being like you know what it's like i'm not getting paid for this i'm not having fun yeah what's the point call it yeah yeah exactly so yeah that's kind of where that stopped really so that was 2009 and so tell me about like kind of transitioning from skating professionally and having it such a big part of your life and so as you said you became a dad so you were probably spending a lot of time with your son and everything but yeah. then like music started coming back into your life and I'm sure it has been there the whole time but like yeah completely at what point did you kind of start thinking maybe I can work on some music projects and try to explore something with that like how, how did it all um, develop from there that kind of came on and I started to, well, I mean, it kind of, they both went kind of hand in hand really for a long time. I got, I think I got my first like computer in about 2000, I think. Okay. I started doing music that way because I think before that is kind of, it's weird to think about a kind of an analog point in that. And I had like a, a little four track tape machine and would make things on that quite a lot. But it's suddenly really the advent of kind of being able to do things in a home studio scenario, which is, which really is, has freed up in the last, you know, well, yeah, in the last 20 years really has cut, you know, I mean, it's, it's night and day from what it was. Do you know uh, what I mean? like, for sure. Yeah. All you need these days is a laptop and a audio interface and you can, you can make loads of guitar stuff or, you know, you can make loads of things. And it's, it's just to do with that really. And that kind of, how that kind of, you know, breaking out to be able to just teach yourself how to use things. And obviously, like things like YouTube and all that kind of stuff, there's so much more stuff of just information out there, which just wasn't there when I was younger to, yeah. to do anything. You just literally had like a guitar and an amp, and that was it. And, you, you know, to even record something on a tape was like a mission, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all that kind of stuff culminated on just doing music more, really. And then I did a few things for Dan McGee. I think the first thing I did was, I think, for uh, the bonus 
Jimmy Boy's section on a, I think it was Lost and Found maybe. I did some music for that. Okay. And then when Dan kind of stopped doing Blueprint and going into more commercial stuff, I just started doing little bits for him really. Him and Percy Dean and they work for different people and mm-hmm. they just started hitting me up for music stuff and it's kind of gone from there really. I, I still do that a little bit but it's, that, that has such a, a kick in the nuts over COVID really because everyone just, you know, all that stuff got really, like everybody's budgets got pulled in yeah. for making stuff. How free and easy it was to go and film stuff and, and it's it's a really weird one with that kind of doing commercial music like that because it's it's got to a point now where you can get so much stuff that's just free to use oh yeah this or that and so it's really hard unless you're kind of very really well established yeah, yeah. which i just kind of felt like i was getting a bit of a more of a ball rolling than kind of covid hit really it was because that's kind of been the last last few years yeah but I just did some music for a friend of mine for a documentary she made and that like won a couple of awards the documentary did and New York and stuff like that so that's really good oh and, nice so that stuff's still going and I still I still make music all the time but um, yeah it's just that I'd like to get do more of that commercial stuff as well and yeah mm-hmm. try and get back on that but I've been doing that and the and the podcast as well which is kind of another yep. thing which takes up a lot of that time and stuff like that so that's going to be kind of another wrinkle and all that stuff really. yeah. so yeah we're going to talk about that for sure yeah sure absolutely. okay but before we do that, I wanted to ask you a bit more about the music uh, gigs that you did. Um, so you did a bunch of things for like a lot of brands in skateboarding and outside yeah, skateboarding. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that you did the music for the Paving Space oh, piece. Yeah, from, yeah, you, you mentioned Dan a bunch of times. Yes, and yes. I had Rafael Zarka on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like a, great, yeah, last summer good. or something. I don't remember. A while back. And, um, and I remember watching that a few years ago and really enjoying it and getting super interested in his work. And uh, I just discovered as I was preparing for this interview that you did the music for it and I was like oh okay yeah, cool yeah. yeah that makes sense and so yeah so like uh, what would you say is one of your favorite kind of projects that you've worked on uh, I'm sure the paving space one must have been a very cool one to work on because of all the great people involved and everything yeah yeah that was really good are there other ones that come to mind in skateboarding or not that you enjoyed very much I'm trying to think, really. I did quite a few ones for New Balance, which are not skate, skateboard bit New Balance, but the regular bit for Percy Dean. I did a few of those, which were really good. But yeah, the Paving Space one was really interesting because that was... Like Dan McGee is, uh, he's, he's, he's incredible. He's really good. At, he's such a, you know, he can be quite a, a tough taskmaster as, as a, if he's filming your skateboard or if, if you're doing music for him. He's quite, he's quite specific and quite, um, quite demanding in a good way, you know? Okay, okay. Just, so that, he was like, no, it has to be like this. No, I want this. And it's like he has <laughs> okay. a vision about what he wants. And, and that was really good to work with on that. And yeah, I think I did like 90% of the music on that. There's one other guy who did one track, I think, which is, which is a, good, a really good track as well. The guy, Ben Crook. How did you work with him on that, actually? Like, did he kind of edit the whole thing and then ask you to score it? Or did were you involved in the whole editing process? Like, how, how did it work? It's kind of a back and forth. Usually it is kind of, usually he, he does send me stuff sometimes and then I kind of do stuff to that. Or we kind of, but the, the, the best way to do it is kind of, especially from a music point of view, to try and, especially if you have beats in things and stuff like that, it's, it's way easier to edit around the music rather than the other way around. Yeah. But it's kind of usually a kind of mix between the two, basically. So it's, it's usually a back and forth. You know, he sends me something, I send it back. It's like uh, do it a bit faster or like put a pause in there well, or something. Well, speed up, slow down, do this, chop this bit, kind of have just this bit of this track and maybe with this and that. Or maybe okay. take this bit out and take that bit out. So it's a kind of dialogue, really. And it's it's mm. really rewarding to do something like that. It did remind me a lot about 
working on skate parts actually, yeah because for sure there is yeah. that kind of the collaboration of doing things and but that one especially was like a really good because there was not only just the sections they did for the because there's like three different places that the blocks were or in the different so there's like different, different tracks those but there's also intro tracks for different bits and he'd say i already want the sis to sound like this or that or that so it's kind of like and from music from a musical point of view it's really interesting to have that as because you know music like anything if, that you do is like you can end up doing a lot of stuff that sounds very similar basically yeah because of anything but because you have your instruments you have your things you like to do and the you know the ways you work basically so anything that brings you out of that and makes you think in a different way about it is always really fantastic it makes you makes you grow a lot really as a, sure. as a musician for sure and it's kind of the similar thing with skating when you kind of go to new spots or you you're on a trip or something like yeah. that. you have this kind of inspiration you know you're not just down to your local park doing something it's, you're taking outside of your comfort zone kind of yeah exactly and it's like it's only through those projects and through those situations that you get to do those things really, mm. I think. so i think those that that was really interesting yeah definitely but yeah that's definitely one of my favorites for sure and so also uh, you did a, an interesting piece for um well you made the music for i'm not sure how to call it like a, an organization for blind veterans from the uk yeah that was that was another thing that percy d did yeah right right i watched it yesterday and i thought oh it must have been an interesting it's completely different like uh, from skating yeah, yeah. and other stuff like commercials and stuff yeah that must have been an interesting project like how, how did you get involved with them uh, well, just through Percy, really, and just through working with him, and yeah, just doing music that way. I mean, Percy's another one who's like he's such a he's got such a, an amazing eye for for photography and for filmmaking. Really, he's he's made so many you know he's made videos for like Elbow, the band, and all kinds of different things, loads of different projects. And mm-hmm. but he he's someone else who has got such a a real through line of how he does everything visually and stuff like that. And yeah, that one was just he, he I sent him a bunch of music and he really liked one and put it to it. And yeah, that was so okay. I, my kind of involvement that was was not much but the the thing when it came out was i was really happy with it because yeah that's a lot of that is you know percy's editing and his filming and yeah really good yeah yeah, yeah. it turned out well yeah, yeah yeah and so you said you're, you're not doing those as much these days because of uh covid and everything that's kind, it's of, kind of post-covid i think a lot a lot of those kind of creative markets have really struggled just in terms of their kind of financing really i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's like i say as well i've been doing kind of more podcast stuff in that yeah. thing and just kind of coming I, I like i said I've, I've just done this stuff for this this the documentary that came out so hopefully I'll, you know more stuff will come from that and i'd like to do that more but yeah. what's that documentary again that you mentioned so it this earlier? is a documentary about it's called after fred it was made by a friend of mine rachel merrick who's a, a filmer and editor it's about a, a woman in Oklahoma and about her kind of, she's 93 now, I think. And like her, she, she made another big, long documentary about kind of domestic abuse in America, basically. Okay. About the legal system there and about how that, you know, the courts and all these things are way more biased towards men in that situation than women. Oh, uh, okay. Especially when it comes to do with like child who has the rights to the children, basically, and all those things and custody. Custody, yes, custody yes. Of the kids, yes. So the custody of, of that stuff is way more weighted to men so she made a documentary about that but this was the footage that she made this shorter documentary about was with this one woman in Oklahoma who was kind of had this well 50 year relationship with marriage with this guy and it was kind of and her story about it really and it's probably going to come out online I think but it's been doing kind of festivals and things like that at the minute but um, yeah that's that was a really really good thing to be part of yeah definitely we just had a screening here in Bath a, a couple, few weeks ago okay which was great yeah really good that seems interesting yeah I'd love to see that when it comes out for sure yeah definitely but yeah, I'd love to. Do, I'd love to do more things like that. I mean, definitely more long form or anything to do with like soundtrack stuff would be would be incredible, really. So it's it's just getting the connections and and finding those things. Definitely, yeah. But definitely want to do more. 
Cool. Yeah, I, ho- I hope you get back uh, to doing more of those. But uh... Well, that's the thing. It's like I'm, I'm making music all the time. So it's just a question of like, I always think when I'm making music, I always just think, you know, this is perfect for something. But it is, it is just those things of just being like the two things finding each other in the right way. The timing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like skateboarding in that way. It's, the, it's yeah. like these things coming together and it's like sometimes they come together and sometimes they don't or, but then sometimes I'll make a piece of music and it'll just sit in my, on my hard, hard drive. drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard drive for ages. And then someone will find up and say, Oh, I need this. And I'll play to them. And they're like, Oh, that's perfect. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's you just the way know. these things work. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So it's like, I never see it as anything of those things stopping or whatever it's just you know freelance work is like that it's just you know yeah it has like ups and downs and waves of uh, peaks and troughs all the right time, yeah but i'm all, always wanting to do it and always always open to doing more so yeah and always always working on music yeah, Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about the podcast as well. Of course, yeah. I saw that you started in May, at least you released the first episode in May 2021. Yeah. I don't remember who was the very first guest. I didn't write it down, but... Um, it was French, the artist French, yes. Richard Sayer. Yeah, yes. So I wanted to ask you, like, how did you decide to, you know, start a podcast? What was kind of the inspiration? I assume you must have been listening to podcasts prior to launching yours. Uh, yeah. And like, which ones were you kind of influenced by and everything? Like, uh, tell me about the genesis of the Skate Creative Podcast. Well, that was just through kind of coming. I've been a podcast fan for a lot of time with a lot of different ones. Um, obviously, like the Nine Club is is one which is there, which is the skate kind of thing, which is has changed quite a lot in the time that it's been out there. But that was um, not only like an inspiration, but kind of like it was more kind of coming out of like just doing like Zoom quizzes over lockdown. Basically, I was just you know it's getting to the point where it's it's funny how these things kind of come together, isn't it? Just like mm. obviously we've had kind of video Skype and things like that and other things, but it didn't really feel like you know we were doing these. In lockdown we were doing these quizzes regularly and stuff like we do them every week mm-hmm. be a bunch of different people and i just thought you know well and surely you can just because i always i always thought oh yeah it'd be amazing to do a podcast but i was just like oh, i'd be such a faff to kind of like have to have people to get to come to you or you go to them it's like so costly and so you know yeah, yeah. let alone the equipment not just the equipment you have to buy but like traveling to someone or doing those things and sure so I was just like, well, you know, idealistically, you'd have people across the table from you, you'd be talking. But yeah. but when we're talking like this, this is, it just kind of got normalized over that point. And I was just thinking, well, if you want to do it, you, know, you, just, you should just start doing it. Because, I mean, there have been some UK ones and some other little bits, but I did feel like, well, I kind of know a lot of people from like, especially my time in skateboarding and, you know, connections to people who are making stuff nowadays. Yeah. yeah. I just thought, you know. I'm sure they'd be up for doing it. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure I could do it. I can do it from a music point of view. Like I can do incidental music for it. I can, that's another outlet for that stuff. And yeah, yeah. So I just thought, well, why not really? And it's, I just kind of started doing it and it's just, it's grown from there. And it's, it started off with being kind of like quite a, I wanted it to be about the skate creative and that kind of the creative aspects. A right. bit like your kind of what you do with with yours. But, sure. Yeah, yeah. But I've kind of, it's kind of morphed into being that as well, but also things like video reviews with, yeah. I do regular ones with Ben Powell, who used to work for Sidewalk Magazine and Ryan Gray from a Skateboard's Companion. Alan Glass, you mentioned earlier. And Alan, Alan, my brother Seth. Your brother Seth, yeah, yeah. We used to do a Christmas special with those two, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, and then just guests as well. So mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, 
it was just too too good a thing to not do really and it's like you know it's it's hard and it's like you know everyone hates the sound of their own voice really and all that kind of stuff <laughs> first like yeah do it and you know that the hardest bit for me is doing the intro just like i have to do that <laughs> so many times you yeah. know? <laughs> like doing that recording the actual podcast with people is fine because you're talking and you're into it and you're doing that stuff but yeah as soon as i sit down with the microphone it's just me and the microphone i hate it yeah, <laughs> just, yeah I'm the same. it's just usually pretty brief but yeah it's just it's grown a lot and it's starting to grow more and you've done uh, i saw almost 30 episodes or around there yeah, like 28 29 yes. or something I think it's maybe 31, 32, but yeah, somewhere like that. Yeah. But I've just been trying to just keep doing it. And, it, you know, it would be really lovely to do like one a week or whatever, but it's just, it's not kind of it's hard. viable <laughs> viable with the rest of my life at the minute. So it's, I try to do one every two weeks, but there are little breaks here and there. And it's like, I sure. do as much as I can. And I, because, you know, as you know, like doing a podcast is however long the recording is, then it's usually twice that to edit it. And then you've got to, you know, do everything else. And it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's growing. And I kind of, you know, I want to keep doing it and keep it going and you know hopefully have some interesting guests on i've had really good feedback off people and yeah, yeah it's been, yeah. Re- been really fun to do and so you've focused of course mainly at this point at least on the uk scene so you've had most of your guests are from the uk i, I saw yep. that if i'm not mistaken the only american person was josh stewart yep yep until now at least so yeah i was just wondering like do you think you'll branch out to people from other countries like um oh, north america yeah, or france or wherever yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd really like that. I suppose it's that I started the podcast and that kind of confidence thing. It was all people that I knew start, you know, and I'm starting to, well, the one with you and Neil was the first one where I'd not, not met the people before. So right, was, yeah. So it's that confidence of just kind of trying to build something and, you know, because I've had really, you know, good feedback and interesting things from people from all over. And like uh, mm-hmm. the guy from the mostly skateboarding thing, he put up a thing oh, for, yeah, for the um, Angie, didn't Templeton he? Templeton Elliot, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He got in contact with us. He said, "Oh yeah, I really like the video reviews." And like, so it's really interesting that you know the people from different parts of the world do listen to it and stuff. And yeah, really yeah. Good. So yeah, I'd like to have like to have more international people on it for sure. But it's um, I suppose I just kind of wanted to build it up so it wasn't just like you know because hopefully the people I've interviewed from the UK are people that are internationally known for sure. Uh, so people like Dan McGee or Wainwright or you know all those people. John Rattray. Yeah, yeah, and they, you know, they're, they're people who are known by the people. So it mm-hmm. would kind of be a thing if you know, because if you get a request to be on a podcast, you just think, oh, well, who's been on it and what is? Oh, it's like, and those people were kind of you know interesting people and stuff like that. So it would hopefully be a bit of a calling card to be like, oh, well, you know, it would be something interesting to be on. But yeah, I definitely want to do that, and I just definitely want to have more people on. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah. you've done really well with yours. It's had a lot of interesting people on internationally. Different. Well, yeah, thank you, and that's what I wanted to because I like you. I, I was very influenced by the Nine Club. Like I listened yeah. to it religiously when it started. And after a few years, I started listening to it a bit less. But uh, I like their format with, you know, they're actually in the same room and it makes for a very sure. authentic yeah, yeah, and yeah. fun conversation. But I felt like, oh, it's too bad. There's pretty much a lot of like chocolate girl guys and, and a lot of people in this industry in California, basically. And of course, it's branched out to many other people outside of that yeah. realm. But uh, for the most part, it's, it's been a lot of these kinds of people. And I felt yeah. like, well, I would find it interesting to have a podcast with people from all over Europe or all over the world you know like uh, yeah, skateboarding yeah. is global at this point exactly I think that is that there is that thing about the American scene I think the nine club is kind of not the you know epitome of that but it is it is very you know California centric California centric and, and that kind of you know even that kind of well talking to Josh Stewart it was interesting about that he talked a lot about the kind of that east coast part of skateboarding and how that was kind of you know its own thing and, yeah. its own thing and very different to the kind of California stuff and obviously he's he's from florida but yeah yeah kind of, but know. it's like a new yorker at this point yeah. exactly yeah so 
so that's interesting seeing because you know that was growing up as a skateboarder you kind of in europe you kind of have that kind of idealistic view of kind of california and that kind of stuff especially like in the 80s that was kind of like oh wow you know yeah. go to these places or do those things but it was interesting that other people in america were having that same feeling about it do you know what i mean it's like that that connection with stuff and if, yeah. you're, if it's snowing in new york or whatever you're probably thinking about the kind of nice california sunshine as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um but yeah so i and you know i do think the thing with podcasts is it's like there's just so much room for stuff you know i mean you know someone could start a podcast tomorrow and have all the same people hired on and get totally different conversations out with them totally different things and yeah you know so it's i think that's what's interesting about that kind of long format stuff is that you can dig a bit deeper and it can and things like the the video review episodes i've done it's like they that's just happened organically and it's it's really really fun to do and we can you know fart about a bit and just have a couple of beers and, and have a laugh really and it's it's like you know i'd always want it to be like you know going down a bar and being with your mates yeah, yeah. just list, listening to someone else's conversation or something like that you know that's that's kind of the ideal of that but and it's really you know those two are great but yeah so to kind of wrap it up with the podcast i was wondering like who's on your bucket list of people you'd love to get i have a few people that i'd love to listen to interviews from you oh, okay of. Of course, there's some people that are, I think, hard to get, but I would love to hear an interview of uh, Tom Penny, like Jacob Harris yep. would be amazing. He's definitely on the list. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> and, uh, like there's a bunch of people like Jamie Platt, who skates for Polar. Yeah, would be a yeah. Cool one. that would be good. He'd be good. Yeah. You did an interview with me and Neil McDonald a few months back, and I'd love to hear a more like uh, in-depth interview of just Neil. Well, I, when his book comes out, yeah, definitely going to be... happen. Yeah, I'll definitely have him back on for that because that's something that we've well, just in the last podcast we had out, we had a little, he put up a little post about a thing we were talking about in the podcast in the last episode, me, Ben, and Rye. But um, okay, yeah, so that's so yeah, that's going to be probably a two-parter, I reckon, for that. Definitely. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> going to be a long one. It, yeah. that's for sure, yeah. <laughs> I hope he does. Yeah, I'm looking forward to his book. It's going to be cool. Yeah, definitely. In terms of other people I'd love to have on, I think Jamie Thomas would be one that I'd really like to do. That oh, yeah, yeah. If possible, because I'd like to talk to him about, especially that first Zero video. Have you ever crossed paths with him? Yeah, I have actually. Well, actually, my brother used to work for him. He used to be his European team manager, my brother Seth. Okay, I didn't know that. So okay. I have actually, yeah, I met him a couple of few times. Yeah, he's a, really, a real good dude and real solid. And Yeah. Yeah, exactly how you'd think he'd be. You know, he's quite pretty focused, but, you know, the guy's got memory on him as well. It's like... Really? Okay. I remember we used to, he came to Lloyd's in Bristol. You know, the, the Lloyd's, the spot is the big... Right, They yeah. did like a, a Fallen demo there, I think. And my brother was, he was doing the TM and all that. So he was like, oh, you should come over and just come and say hi and stuff. So I did. But Jamie Thomas was doing, it was a, a bit ago now, but he was doing like a, a live chat thing. And I was like, I, I said hi to him and there. It's like, oh, hi, Joel. I, said, I remember you did that nose with you at that demo. And I was like, shit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, <laughs> cool. So he's got, he's got such a good memory for all those things. And considering like how many people that that guy meets and all the things. Yeah. Imagine the demos that guy's done. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. so many and so much stuff. But so he'd be a good one, definitely. Jason Dill would be good as well. Oh, yeah. That would be but super that, cool. That'd have to be, you know, the stars might have to align for that one, but I don't know. It's probably a hard man <laughs> to uh, track down, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I, like I said, I've met, I think I've met him a couple of times as well. He's always been super sound, but yeah. Wow, those would be amazing. Those two would be good because they're, they're kind of like key ones for me in my in my personal skateboarding. Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. Inspiration, but anybody else? I think I've got a few coming up, hopefully coming up that I've been in touch with people, which I'm really looking forward to doing. But yeah, I won't say which ones are because they, they yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it could not happen. Sure. Tomorrow. No, no, of so, course. But yeah, iron's in the fire, definitely. So hopefully soon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I kind of wrap up my interviews with this question for me, which is like, what's the most valuable lesson you feel you've learned from skating? I suppose just 
it really taught me a work ethic, I suppose, really, because I didn't, like I said, I was really not very good at school or didn't kind of didn't gel well with that kind of academic aspect of that kind of stuff. And sure, it really taught me that, you know, you can learn how to do something and improve at something in that way. And it's like, and the only, you know, the only way I really did that, like I said, was just going out by myself and just doing it really. Mm. It's like, I think that that has been a big lesson for me in a lot of ways about, you know, I've applied that to so many other aspects of my life. Do you know what I mean? Like you do have to do the work, you know, and it's like, it's a funny one. It's like with skateboarding it is, and the same principle applies to everything, I think, is, you know, it, it, you know those times when I was out skating by myself or skating down a skate park loads. Yeah. That feels like the preparation for when you do go into the street and try and get a street trick or, you know, like with my music stuff, if I'm playing something or practicing something or doing something, it's then it's like you may be doing that for one day and just be, it'd just be fun. And then you go to record something that's like, oh, I can apply that or change that. And, and obviously the, the best things in skateboarding and in music, actually, for me, are the bits where you have that disciplined learning. Mm is then applied to a kind of interpretive or improvisational aspect of another bit of it, basically. Mm, So you have all this bedrock of what you've learned. So in a skate context, it would be like, I've nosed around that block over there a hundred times. So then when you're in a situation where you're on a trip somewhere, you've had all that practice to apply that to wherever you are. Mm. And that really kind of is the bedrock of all things like that. Music is the same, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. That time of practicing your instruments, doing those things, then... You have to put in the work, yeah. Yeah, and that's that makes it not to make it sound like kind of like oh I've got to do the work kind of thing, but it is like kind of like it is about that kind of growth really. And I think that's, right. that's the thing that skateboarding taught me is like in order to grow through because I like I said I skated for a long time and kind of wasn't any good really. You know, like I didn't really <laughs> feel like I did very much or didn't really achieve very much or didn't really kind of like you know oh, I really did something good today. And it was only after that point, but I did have all that time just riding around and getting comfortable really, I suppose. And that was that you know I couldn't have done that without it. Do you know what I mean? I, I sure. On a very different skateboard in that way so yeah i think that's something just that perseverance and that kind of work ethic self-motivation really i think because mm-hmm. i think with mm-hmm. everything you do even if you're working for somebody else or you're doing anything it all comes back in during the podcast exactly yeah so that's all that kind of thing so yeah that's that, i think that's the main thing that i've taken from that like i said that's been applied to every part of my life really mm-hmm. so yeah so let's wrap it up with the friends questions cool so this very first one is from Helena Long. Oh, cool, yeah. Whom you had uh, on your podcast a while back, a few months yes. ago. Yes, I just saw her do a gig with her band a few weeks ago. She was amazing, oh, nice. yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah, in Bristol. That's right, yes, she, I forgot she plays music as well, yeah. Yeah, she's a drummer, she's really good, yeah, amazing. So she said, you've had the chance to skate some famous spots over the years that are now gone. Which spots would you like to bring back if you could? Ah, oh, interesting one. I suppose it would be, there's a classic, was a classic Sheffield spot called the Walking Man, which was like a really small set of stairs and like a, it was an undercover, it was like one of the only undercover spaces that we could skate on like on a rainy day, if it was a Sunday or something like that, we'd go there and, but that was like a, it was pretty, pretty small and everything and I, but I had some of my kind of first coverage there, there used to be some kind of blocks on these, like down some stairs and I had a few sequences and stuff in there and, so that was one spot in Sheffield, definitely, yeah, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of any other kind of other ones internationally or anywhere else that I've been that are gone now. The one we talked about earlier where you tried to Ollie nose manual into, Oh yeah, uh, that one, yes, that one's gone. I think it's gone because I, I haven't seen this spot in videos in a long time, so I assume it's yeah. gone. But uh I mean, that was pretty tough, that one, because I was kind of like into a dual carriageway, kind of like a big road. Yeah. It was pretty sketchy. Pretty hectic, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I'm bummed I didn't get that trick on it, but there we go. <laughs> so maybe that <laughs> one too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's do the next one. So this one is an audio one. Oh, okay, cool. 
Hi, Quinton. It's Seth here. I just wanted to ask Joel what was the catalyst for his change in skating style from like drops, rails, big stairs, and gaps into sort of like more manis and sort of like more ledge stuff too. And also, how close was he to getting on Blueprint? Ah. So that was my brother Seth, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. So the first part, we kind of talked about it a bit, like your transition yeah. from basically being a zero kind of guy to being a more yeah, Jason sure. Dill. I'd say it's that photosynthesis part. Yeah, definitely. For the changeover, definitely. Okay. Regards to the Blueprint stuff, that is kind of a weird one because it was when I was kind of on zero. It's about 2000, 2001, I think. I had like a really... I th- yeah, I was filming quite a bit and doing stuff like that. And I've been on Panic, of course. And like all those guys, especially like Mark Baines, mm-hmm. was a, you know, a close friend of mine, still is obviously. But at the time, I was skating loads with him and stuff like that. And he was on Blueprint and good friends with McGee and stuff like that. And I did really well at a competition, like the last, I think it was the last, one of the last St. Albans ones. I think I won. Like It's the only competition I've ever won. But I think a few people saw it at that. And it was kind of talked about like... There used to be this guy called Alvin who used to do the stuff for Panic when he used to ride for it. And he was kind of part of Blueprint, but became less so as the time went on. And he phoned me up and was like, oh, yeah, you know, we think we'd want you to ride for Blueprint and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, OK, you know, that would be great and stuff. And I was like kind of thinking, well, I don't know why this guy, why Al- you know, Alvin's phoning me up and like, why is Dan not phoning me up kind of thing? Because uh, you know I mean? like yeah. Dan's a good friend of mine and he's like, he was Blueprint, you know what I mean? So I phoned Dan up and I was like, oh, what's this kind of, you know, and he's kind of like, well, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. And we might have space on the team or whatever, but they weren't sure about it. So I don't know. It's (laughs) (laughs) reading between lines. I reckon they probably put it to a vote and I didn't make the vote, Uh, (laughs) which is fine. And it's like, like I said, they're all my friends or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But I think maybe a couple, maybe people like, I don't know. I think maybe t- I talked to Baines a bit about it. And he kind of thought, I think he said at the time, he was like, yeah, like, you know, Joel's really good and stuff, but I don't know if he fits with it and stuff. And so it's like, I, you know. Jealousy or? <laughs> uh, not, not jealousy, but more just kind of like, I think I was so just like in that zero zone for such a long time. And Blueprint was like the opposite to that. So, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I think they all respected me as a skater, I don't think they really saw it as a thing about me being. They the thought same maybe vibe. you weren't the best fit uh, because so, of the way yeah, you but, skated, and yeah. Okay. But I mean, I think they did kind of branch out a little bit more, and they had people like Ben Grove on and stuff like that, who were a bit more kind of in that kind of vein of stuff, really. But I was already in landscape then, so it never came up again. But yeah, you know, it would have been it would have been nice in some ways. But at the same time, I kind of feel like I did hang out with those guys all the time and, and did really special things with that team, like go on trips with them and things like that. Which yeah. So even though I wasn't wasn't on the team, it was it was, it still, was still hanging around with all the a people. good camaraderie and stuff like that. And it's kind of maybe more special that it wasn't. You know, I did change that relationship just being a fun one, really, rather than it being kind of something that I had to kind of you know had to do stuff on. But yeah, mm. so close, but but no cigar with that one. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see. This next one is from Ryan Gray. Oh, nice. We mentioned him uh, a bunch of times as well. So he said, Joel used to ride for Sumo Skate Shop in Sheffield, which was legendary in the 90s and early 2000s. Which 90s Sheffield local should have ridden for Sumo but didn't? Oh, tough, tough. Deep cuts from Ryan there. (laughs) Um, I think everybody that kind of was good there and kind of got hooked up, really. Okay. And there were people who kind of just even got like, you know, discount and not, not flow really because it's mm. a shop. But, 
you know, I mean, I think there are people who came out afterwards who probably would have ridden for the shop if it had still been open and still been a place and stuff like that. Like, obviously, Matlock, people like that, they would have fitted in perfectly with that. But obviously, they were too young at the time and stuff like that. So, right. so I think everybody everybody who deserved to be on, deserved to ride for it, actually rode for it. Because there was like, I think the team was pretty big, like nine or ten people, I think. It was quite quite a lot. And even some people from outside of Sheffield rode for it, some people from Manchester and some other people. So... Mm-hmm. So I reckon they got they got all the covers the bases all covered there with that one. I don't, I don't think okay. anybody missed out with that really, but yeah. You kind of answered, but he asked uh, as a follow up. He said, if Sumo was to reopen today, which present day Sheffield local would you put on the team first? Oh well, Matlock would be top of the list. Yeah, definitely. He's my, like my favorite skateboarder. He's amazing. Is he the guy who just had a part on uh, for um, passport? Uh, passport. Yes. Right. Yes. 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 He's incredible. Yeah, amazing. What, what's his name? Matlock. Uh, uh, Matlock Bennett Jones. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah, his part was incredible. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. We discussed that one quite a lot on, on one of the podcasts I did with Seth and Alan. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of the spots he skates in that and shit, like some of the Sheffield skate spots, they're really crusty and like mm, so gnarly. Yeah. Especially that steep rail that he, he does the lip slide down. It's like to do a lip slide down that is so tough. It's, it's literally like that. <laughs> it's, it's mental. Damn. So yeah, he'd be, he'd be top of the list for me, but he's top of most of my list at the minute, to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, let's do the next one. If you could go back in time and change one of your pro board designs, which one would you change and why? Uh, who's that from? <laughs> That's your son, Logan. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, amazing. <laughs> uh, you got him. That's cool. I didn't recognize his voice then. That's weird. Is he the oldest or the youngest? He's the oldest, yeah. He's uh, my son, Logan. The 17-year-old one. A daughter, Coco's 13, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, oh, that's an interesting one. Interesting. Which one would I change? I think there's two. There's there's one that I had, the, my last one, I think, was like a bowling alley, which was kind of nice, but kind of like towards the end of landscape, there's uh, uh, Foz did kind of less of the artwork stuff than this guy called DJ Thatcher. I think that was his name. He did a lot of graphics. He did some really, really good stuff, amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. But there was like a kind of bowling alley one, which a light and stuff, and it was kind of like it was all like, a, I don't know if they fit together or if there was like a neon kind of light series, but yeah. Okay. That one was good, but I maybe would have maybe would have changed that a little bit. But mm. and I had another one which was kind of a bit like the Joy Division, uh, Known Pleasures. Yeah, the waves. Cover. Yeah, the waves. But it's kind of like the landscape symbol, and that was rad. But I kind of there was like a, an almost one. There was a girl one. There yeah, was a toy machine. One. Yeah, they all kind of came out at the same time, and I kind of. Yeah. And even though possibly that one was first, but I can't I can't remember, but. It was kind of just like, I like it and it's cool, but... Yeah, like, ah, does it feel that special? Well, does it, it just felt a bit like kind of, you know, really? I don't know. Because it's <laughs> like, you know, if I was from Manchester or something like that, then... Well, yeah, there's also that, yeah, <laughs> for know? sure. So maybe it could have been a, a Human League one instead or something like that. I oh, don't yeah. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, maybe, the, maybe those two. Okay, okay. Thanks for that, Logan, yeah. So this next one is from Dan McGee, actually. We talked about this, but he said, ask him how his career path was changed by Neil Chester's decision to save five pounds buying the cheapest plywood, causing him to transform from Jamie Thomas into Jason Dill. McGee's obsessed with this, basically. (laughs) So when I was in Sheffield, I I was kind of going into the town centre one day and I was on a bus and I saw this handrail. This is kind of like my peak handrail point. It was probably 2000, something like that. Okay. And I saw this handrail over like a, I was on a double-decker bus, so I was kind of like quite high up. And I was like, oh shit, there's that rail over there. It looks pretty, looks pretty big, but it's... Scalable. Looks, looks doable. It's kind of like grass on the side, so you could kind of bail it all right. Sure. So I actually went with Dan a bit later and... I think I tried, I don't know if I tried it that day when he was there, I'm not sure. Anyway, 
But the run out of the bottom, so if it was like two rails that went down, so it was quite a thin set of stairs, but it was quite, the rails were quite high. They were kind of like up to my chest, basically. So, oh, wow. Okay. Pretty big. But the bottom, the run out of it was kind of like the path was thinner than the rails, basically. So if you just skated the rail, you would have gone into like, there was like an edging on the path, basically like a stone edging. You'd have like gone to like 50-50 on a curb at the bottom, basically. So Okay. So I went there with Neil Chester, who filmed the sumo video and filmed for Blueprint and filmed loads of other really amazing UK videos. Mm-hmm. So I was just starting to try it and I just thought, well, at the run out, I've got to like basically have some wood there because otherwise there's no landing, basically. Mm. And it really was just like, you know, there weren't many rails. You could skate very well then and stuff like that. So to find what you just had to make make do with what you had, basically. And we basically had some other stuff. We'd been using it to run out for somewhere else, but it was really thin wood. Okay. So I just kind of put it at the bottom and I just thought, oh, it's, you know, it'll be fine. It'll work out. Yeah. It'll work out. So I like started to grind the rail and then basically ground the whole thing and tried to land on this wood. And I hit the wood and three of my wheels went through the wood. Oh, shit. So it just stopped me dead. And kind of like, it was like a 15 stair rail that was that high to stop, basically. I just kind of went and rolled out. And I was like, oh, I was so pissed off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that sounds horrible. so, so it wasn't Neil's fault, really. It was it was my fault just as much, really. But yeah. But then I went back again with some better wood, and I fucking I like basically ollied on, and I missed my ollie at the top, and it flipped me out over the rail, and I caught my legs on the thing, and I kind of span around it. It's on my Instagram. I'll give you the link. For oh it. yeah, yeah, watch. please. Yeah. You can watch it. <laughs> you can see it. Watch me, watch me eating shit on it. But yeah, so I went back, tried it again, and I. I, yeah, I took a hell of a... I really got lucky on that one. I was like, I could have really fucked myself up, but I managed to get away with it. Wow. And I think I went back to maybe try and do it for portraits, but I didn't really get very far with it. So okay. it's still it's still not done, and I think it's still there, but it's pretty horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Someone needs to go to go do it, yeah. Well, maybe, like I say, I think it still needs to run out and all that kind of thing, so it would be, it would be tough to do anyway. Okay, but, yeah. Okay, this next one is from Nick Jensen. Oh, cool. So he said, when you were filming for portraits, do you have an interesting story about Chris Massey, who we all dearly miss? Oh, so many, yeah. It's just, um, Chris was just such a such a good guy and such a, you know, wickedly dry sense of humor. And like, what I always talk about is we went to Paris mm-hmm. to go and it's like, it would have been a real struggle for everybody to get the time off. He was working at, a, uh, he was a manager of a Starbucks at the time while he was filming that video. So he was working full time and doing all that stuff as well. And wow. But yeah, we went on this trip to Paris and it was like the first time I met Soy, actually. The first time I met Benjamin DeBert. Oh, yeah. And amazing trip. But like first day, first night we were skating and we were just, he was fucking about. Because he, he was a good skater as well, but he was fucking about and did a tray flip and he fucking rolled his ankle so badly. Like it totally just went like the size of a watermelon. So oh. like the rest of this, the rest of this week, he was kind of hobbling about after us like, like literally trying to like, I think he had a crutch and stuff like that. It was that bad. Wow. So we went, there was like no filming of lines, nothing. Nothing like that. We just had to do that stuff. <laughs> and it was just because we'd always talk about, you know, like, you know, we just like sometimes he used to have like, you know, just bad luck with things like that. It was just, <laughs> it was funny, but yeah. But, and like the premiere was was incredible as well. That was such a good night. But it also like he had real trouble with like the projector and stuff like that. It was really dark on the screen. And like I okay. came down, and I was like, oh, sorry. And he was like, and his, his hands were bloody. And I was like, what, what's, what's happened, Christy? And he was like, oh, I've just been punching the wall because I'm so pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> so like he literally put his you know his blood sweat and tears into that yeah like, oh yeah 
but you know, still, still such an amazing experience and, and such a good guy, and mm-hmm. and I do do miss him, and it's uh, it's such a shame for this coming up that he's not here to be around for the you know yeah twenty year anniversary. All the love mm-hmm. portraits is getting lately, so yeah, so big off to Mass, big off to Messi, yeah. Okay, so this one is from Foss, from uh, Mark uh, Foster. Oh, cool. So he said, ask him if he remembers that night we were skating the weird quarter pipe on top of the board near his house in Sheffield, and one of our boards zoomed out and almost went into the road. But we saved it, <laughs> but this car slammed its brakes and did a 180 slide in the middle of the street. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do remember it. that, yeah. Uh, Foss came to stage with me in Sheffield, and we kind of just, we both didn't drink then. Well, Foss still doesn't drink. I drink a little bit now, but mm-hmm. we were both just, you know, we'd go skating and do that. But there was a little kind of weird, there was a church which was down the road from my house, and it had these, like, really thin walls. Okay. But they were like a perfect transition, so they kind of, like, went up to vert, and they must have been about four foot high, but only, like, kind of maybe a foot, foot and a half wide. So you could kind of drop in. I think Baines does, like, a drop in and a 360 flip off this block and stuff like that, but mm. yeah. But yeah, that was funny because like it was parked next to this main road in Sheffield and like, yeah, I remember his board going out and he nearly taken this guy out. But <laughs> similar story on that was one of the funniest things I had in Glasgow, not with Foz, but with, on a landscape trip, we were up there, we were staying with uh, Alex Irvine, it was me oh, yeah. and Snowy and people. We was, there's a spot in Glasgow, which is like a big downhill with some steps sticking out. There's loads of people have had footage on it. I'm not okay. sure if they're there anymore. But basically it's like these steps that looks quite kind of East Coasty, like SF kind of style vibe. <laughs> thing even though it's in glasgow right but we were skating there one night and well, the first night we got there and basically i did like a i was trying to just do like a five on these stairs and i did like a five and zipped out my board went down the hill mm-hmm. went down to this crossroads where it was this car came down ran over my board cool as a cucumber the guy gets out of the car picks my board up opens his boot puts it in the boot drives off with it <laughs> <laughs> like he just like didn't even say anything just like ding, 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 and he just like drove away with it wow that's I was incredible just like, i was just literally stood there like i was at the top of this hill just like all right okay just like didn't say anything just put it in his boot drove away <laughs> so like the next morning i had to go and get a whole new setup from the shop and stuff like that and i had nothing i was just i was sitting down for the rest of the night that night it was funny <laughs> That's so random. So in so, somewhere in Glasgow, there might be an old rusty landscape board, which is... Did it break? Because did he roll on it or...? He drove over it. I don't think it broke or anything like that. But yeah, he just got, got out of his car, killed his cucumber, just put it in his boot and he drove away. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so board's going... I had another board run over by a bus, which it totaled the whole setup. So it broke the trucks, the board, bearings, flat spot, the wheels. It was completely flat. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, bus. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> Okay, let's see. I have another audio one here. Okay, Joel, I remember when you used to skate a lot of big rails and big drops and big drop-ins and shit. You used to have this ritual that you called cancelling where you used to mess around with the beanie on your head and, like, do a few kind of compulsive things when you were prepared to do something gnarly. Tell us about this madness. That was Ben Powell, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. I think Ben really recognised this because I always I'd, I'd wear a kind of like a, a beanie, like a zero beanie, especially in the um, a sumo video. Okay. And I kind of like I'd always kind of adjust it before a trick. I think I always used to do like funny little ticks like that before doing tricks and stuff like that. And it's like they kind of creep in these kind of weird like little yeah little rituals. Yeah, and it's like it's such a short space of time. It's like you run up to something, you do something. It's like I remember seeing a, a video of Andrew Reynolds talking about that. Yeah, like the, how he, the madness. It was a uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's his name? Epically later, um, Patrick O'Dell. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
I think it was just part of that, really. But it's one of those things you don't really know you're doing at the time. So it's not a conscious thing. And then you kind of recognize it. You kind of think, shit. <laughs> I mean, I still, I, I'm still really bad. I, I talk to myself all the time, like <laughs> to my breath all the time. So people look at me street and they're funny in the street. And just, I think, why are they looking at me funny? It's really because you like talking to yourself and being a weirdo. But yeah, <laughs> so I think I still think there's uh, elements of that which have persisted in my life. Definitely. Yeah. So, okay. but I think that's probably, that's probably skating by myself quite a lot as well you know you kind of don't really you're in your own little world doing those things so you don't notice <laughs> until someone points them out to you yeah <laughs> okay this one is from mark baines oh cool so he said having been around so much before you moved away from sheffield i always thought it was mad how much you lived and breathed skateboarding i remember the talk of you going to do a pretty gnarly job in everyday solo anyway it seemed that you went from being obsessed with skateboarding to not really skating at all in a short space not all through choice but through injury and life changes i always wondered how that affected you and whether you missed the little things like going out filming going on trips and generally being around it so much as you were for quite a long period of time do you feel there might have been more to come if you could have got through that period of injury i think that's interesting interesting thing i think that's kind of been an ongoing thing for me really because it's like i think i miss those things yeah every day i miss them still miss them still miss i mean like trips going on trips is is the top one for me really that's still something i wish i could do and and, you know still can do but it's just it's just having the time and things like that and Mm. but it is you know like there is nothing like that feeling of just being out the whole day and very carefree carefree in a you know in a foreign country is the best one usually just to be out there and just you know someplace you've never been before with a bunch of your friends in the van all day and Mm -hmm. you know and it's like you have such a different you know it's all about where you're going next or what you're doing or the trick you're trying or you know if if you're not skating there's somebody else skating it's yeah amazing yeah so i do miss all those things definitely but like a kind of like what i said earlier on it it just got to the point where it wasn't the same anymore and it's like and i still think if it had felt the same i'd you know still felt the same way about it but it really did change a lot in a weird way Mm. and i think that's the thing which i'm very like that as a person if i do something i kind of do it 100 percent yeah and then sometimes if i don't want to do something or something changes for me then i kind of have a hard way of it's hard for me to kind of do it begrudgingly and if i do that then i kind of feel like i'm not being that true or honest to that kind of part of myself i suppose mm. it's, um, i think it's interesting as well because mark's just had a baby recently as well oh, yeah. so okay which is you know amazing and it's such an amazing thing to happen and, and, and you know i'm so happy for him but you know, to try, as I suppose from his point of view, maybe you try to think about what it was like to try and be pro and have a baby at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's pretty tough. I mean, obviously he's he's kind of in his career, he's doing his New Balance stuff now, so he's he's not pro anymore. But yeah, at the same yeah. time, but so that's that's really cool. But so it's a different point of his life. But the, just the those two things, trying to hold those together and trying to make both of them work, was really tough. And yeah, like I say, my my back injuries were not good at that. Well, yeah, yeah, that didn't help yeah. for sure. Totally not. And it's just, I mean, if you've ever had a bad back or whatever, but trying to skate with that, it's just the worst. Yeah, it's no, just, it's, yeah. It's so hard. But yeah, I, I feel like what he was saying is that would do a bit more to come. There was definitely, I did feel like I could have maybe done another video part and maybe had a, because that, like I said, that, that stuff had in Horizons was okay, but just, you know, just wasn't, I needed to have way more and it was just, it wasn't cutting it really from my point of view. Mm, okay. So I think if it had been, you know, money's no object, that kind of thing, maybe and I could have focused a bit more than I think I probably, probably could have done more, but at the same time, I'm happy with the stuff that I did and it's kind of, it's cool to have those things. So yeah. Sure. Yeah. To look back on and absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's all good. But I always say this as well. I always think everybody who skates 
should do a section, even if it's just on their own, you know? Sure, just, yeah, just to keep as a memory and, yeah. Well, just sure. keep as a memory, just just have that thing of, of feeling that you're building something, you know, because that's the best the best thing about video filming videos. And I filmed one for, like, I had a part in one of Mark's videos that he made, one called Driving South, and we worked on it, we skated on that together, and, like, we just go out every day, and that was a real good experience. And that thing of working on a project, actually, yeah. well, that comes back to kind of the music stuff as well. That's the really rewarding bit of that for me is that seeing that final product and, you know, and feeling like you've been part of something is, is really important. Absolutely. Okay, let's do just one quick last one. Yeah, cool. Describe your most favorite movie scene and what makes it so special. <laughs> <laughs> did you recognize the voice? I did recognize it. That's my wife, isn't yes, it? It's <laughs> <laughs> my wife, Carrie, yeah. That's nice. Um, my favorite movie scene. Um, Are you a big uh, movie guy? I do like films a lot. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think my favorite film is Blade Runner, uh, the Ridley Scott film. Yeah, yeah, the original one, yeah. Yeah, uh, my favorite scene from that, I think, is Rutger Hauer at the end of that when he's kind of chasing Deckard through that building. There's like Rutger Hauer's performance in that is so good, and it's kind of like it's crazy, like it's kind of stupid in a way and kind of silly, <laughs> but okay. it's totally believable. But there's a bit in the end where he's watching Deckard climb up the side of the building when he's kind of chasing him around. Okay, and he's kind of laughing at him a bit, like looking at this window. And he's like, "Where are you going?" and all this kind of stuff. And there's a bit where he's kind of like leans his head out the window and he lets the rain fall on his face and he kind of like like has this minute of doing that and then he kind of remembers what he's doing and then starts to chase him again <laughs> it's like that feels like the way you just describe it then it feels really contrived and really stupid and like kind of but actually in the film in the context of the character it really works it's yeah like there's a real like that character of the kind of this this robot who's kind of half psychopath but half like little child as well yeah 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 it's amazing so I think that's my favorite little bit but yeah okay I need to see that movie again I haven't seen it in years but uh... it's yeah it's old and it's um there's loads of different versions of it as well there's like loads of different cuts and things but yeah but he's amazing in that he's the best thing about that film definitely Okay, this last one is from... So I'm going to butcher his name. I'm sorry. I think it's Vohan Baker. Is that how you say his name? Oh, Vaughan. Vaughan. Vaughan Baker, yes. So I used to ride for Blueprint and Unibomber. Yeah. Yes, who was on your podcast a while back yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah, sure. So he said, Joel, growing up in Sheffield, you were surrounded by a very strong skate community. Sumo was a local skate shop at the time. What effect do you think this had on the scene throughout those years? And what notable stories do you have from those times for us? And what role do you think local skate stores play within the UK scene today? I think they're absolutely vital, to be honest. I mean, I think there's um, it's getting harder and harder to be an independent skate shop now. I mean, not that there's many chain skate shops or anything like that left either. But yeah. I think it's they're a massive part. And I think back then... There was such a kind of late nineties to two, you know middle two thousands or whatever. There was such a a really strong scene, a really strong connection between a lot of the independent shops like Slam, Mischief, Welcome in Leeds, and Sumo in Sheffield, and uh, a bunch of different ones in Manchester over the years. And it's like you know we'd all they'd all come together for all the comps, and we'd see all the same people, and it was like a you know so many friends coming together and like focus in Scotland and yeah a bunch of different ones. And it's just there was like this network basically, which I still think is there and lot of ways and you know still there but but back then i think it was quite a special time for that really and, and this sumo in sheffield was was the linchpin really was the kind of like the thing which really pulled the scene together i think in sheffield for a long time and yeah and really started a lot of stuff and like in the last uh, video review show i did with ben and rye mm-hmm. 
Ryan chose the sumo video, that, which was interesting. But yeah, just that kind of thing was was something that was really, you know, a monumental thing, I think, in the British scene there was the, was the, were those shop videos. You know, it's like we'd all be really stoked to see, you know, whichever scene was coming out and all those stuff. And I think yeah, I think that's still relevant today. And there's, there's still so many things that are ways that those local shops support communities. You know, do really good grassroots things like raising money for skate parks. Yeah, yeah. But just for somewhere for, for the, the younger skaters to go and feel like they have a connection with something. And, you know, and, you know, skate shops, I always feel like, you know, some people find them intimidating sometimes. But if you're starting out, I guess. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah, totally. But but if I compare that to like a, like a guitar shop to go in, like guitar shops <laughs> are the worst places to go ever. <laughs> They're just horrible. Just like everyone's so competitive and like wants to like, you know, thrash everybody off. And it's like, yeah, I wish yeah, yeah, skateboarding yeah. was so much more. Welcome and accepting and you know supportive in that way so yeah 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 but yeah so i think sumo was everything really in that way and it's you know accepted some really 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 good stuff and everybody who worked there and henry and my brother and, and martin and rona who started it as well and loads of other people really contributed loads to that ben weaver did a lot of the graphic stuff who now works for wire and free magazine okay yeah and sam you know sam ashley did lots oh, yeah. for them as well and that was his his starting out was with me and we shot loads with me and mark baines in sheffield for ages which was amazing for us and, and again he's kind of this starting his career then and, and just what he's gone out to so it's supporting all that network really the shops do all of that like 50 50 in bristol is another shining example of like the amount of stuff that Sid does for the local community and like the mm. local skate stuff and all the collaborations that they do and you know him and Danny have real massive history with the entire Bristol scene really and just just so much stuff and mm-hmm. they're vital really so you know they need supporting and I still think they are supported definitely but it can always always be more but it's um yeah so I think they're, they're absolutely vital well let's wrap it up here thank you so much Joel amazing lovely to talk to you again that's it for my conversation with Joel Follow him on Instagram at Joel Curtis, J-O-E-L-C-U-R-T-I-S. Visit his website, joelcurtismusic.com to check out some of his recent work. Follow the Skate Creative Podcast at the Skate Creative Podcast and make sure to go listen to some of his episodes from the last two years on your favorite podcast platform. Lastly, if you haven't seen it already, I highly recommend you go watch the Portraits video by Chris Massey for Landscape Skateboards, which we talked about. You can find it on YouTube. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Boards.